John chapter 21. Here's what we finished in John chapter 16. You go, how were you now in chapter 21? What happened? Here's what happened. Uh, just uh, when we take a month of prayer and fasting, we pray and we focus our preaching and teaching on prayer. And what happened was we recently, in one of our prayer, months of prayer and fasting, looked at John 17, four Sundays, four sermons out of John 17. You can go back to that and find that on the web if you want to. Then at Easter time, we leapfrogged, and chapter 18 and 19 was all the passion of Christ and his crucifixion that Lloyd taught on. And then Sunday, Easter Sunday, we did John chapter 20, the resurrection. So uh, what we'll do is on the web, we'll put all those things together in one package. And now we're going to close off our series on John at John chapter 21. Is that okay with you? Some of you are going, this about time. I love this gospel. I hope you've seen Jesus. What was the purpose of it? He said it again. These things I have written the different signs that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. There's real life in the person of Christ. A number of years ago, I shared an experience I had with one of my mentors uh, in this church, Dr. Martin Sanders, and I just want to revisit that. I'll never forget it. We were out for lunch one time and he was talking to me and he, said, he asked me this question. He always asks these bizarre questions, but he has real intention with it. He said to me, he said to Jerry, he goes, uh, what does forgiveness smell like? I went, he said, excuse me? He says, what does forgiveness smell like? And I said, oh, I don't know, Martin. Where'd you pull that one out? And he said, and he just stared at me. And he would not move until I answered that. So it forced me to begin to think. And his eyes refused to let me discard the question. And... Uh, as I thought deeply, suddenly I was gripped with an answer. And the Holy Spirit gave me a little revelation. We know things in our head, but once we have an experience with that, it just makes it more alive. And I said to him, forgiveness is, smells like Old Spice. Old Spice, if you don't know, is that old aftershave. You know, you get it for about three gallons for a buck. And that was my father in his early days. He said, tell me about it. And so I shared it. You know, when I was, did something as a kid and my dad would discipline me or whatever, afterward I'd find him sitting in his lazy boy chair in the family room and he'd motion for me to come over and I'd, a little guy would run up and sit on his lap and he'd hold me. And he'd, he told me why he disciplined me, assured me that he loved me. And then he just would hold me and I'd sit with him on his, put my head on his chest and I would, Old Spice. <laughs> That's what forgiveness smells like to me. What does it smell like for you? I don't know. I know one person said, you know what? Um, after I was sort of bad and my mom knew it and I was disciplined and all that, mom, mom had a soft heart for me. She, Old Spice smelled like cinnamon buns. She would do that for me and as an offering or an extension say, hey, we still love you. Here's a, what is it for you? What does forgiveness smell like? Well, this isn't just a crazy sort of exercise. We're going to come back to this because it actually, actually has, uh, comes into play in our text this morning. So without further ado, uh, let's go. 
John chapter 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That is also the same word of Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. So Jesus, again, he, he's not staying with the disciples like before the, re, before the death and resurrection. He appears to them and then he withdraws and he does other things. So he's, he's not with them consistently. And so what happens is he uh, reveals himself. He's done it a few times. And um, what's fascinating, I want to come back to this later, is that who's the mouthpiece of the disciples all the time? Peter, right? What's fascinating is this. When Jesus reveals himself to the disciples post-resurrection, the first two times we read it in the Gospels, Peter says nothing. The only person that really speaks is Thomas. I find that absolutely fascinating. The one who's always the first to speak, the first to react, the one who, you know, just, he just does, does nothing. Verse 2, Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cain of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that means James and John, and, the two other dis- and two other disciples were together. We don't know who the other one. So there's only seven together in this one particular place. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, <clears throat> he may be revealing that he was just bored waiting for Jesus to come to Galilee. Could be. However, there's a number of scholars who believe that when Peter makes this statement, I'm going fishing, it's a lot deeper than that. This whole thing about the, the way he envisioned Jesus being the Messiah who's going to come in and reign on the kingdom and on this earth and kick out the Romans and all that, now the whole thing has been thrown up in the air. He doesn't know what's going on. Jesus revealed himself twice, just appeared in a, appeared in a room, you know, talked to them briefly and then was gone. And now we see him, he's uncertain, he doesn't know what's going on. So they're saying that when he says, I'm going fishing, what he's actually saying is, I'm going back to what I know. This whole thing doesn't make sense anymore. And he returns to his old life. He was a fisherman before he was called to follow Jesus. So he makes a decision and the others follow suit. You know, once a leader, always a leader. I know this one particular person that I know very well in my family. I won't say who. And I said, this person will lead people to heaven or hell. They're just leaders. They're going to do it, right? And Peter, just as a leader, and seven, the other six go with him. And they, and I'm not saying they turned their back on Jesus. Please understand that. But the dream, the expectation, it's just fizzled out. They need to eat and make a living and all of that kind of stuff. So they, uh, they go back. And so we're going to go with you. So they went out into the boat. Very fascinating. He doesn't say they went into a boat. You say, you know, what difference is that? There's a big difference. The boat is a very specific boat. It's their boat. It's the one they've used before a lot. It's his fishing boat. He took and went back into the boat. And they were out all night and they caught nothing. Just as... Day was breaking, Jesus appeared. This is so like Jesus, right? When, when you fail in the darkness of the life that you're experiencing, just Jesus comes when dawn comes. 
this incredible loving patience of Christ. He says, whatever your dark night, whatever your failure, whatever you are wrestling with, whatever disappointment or commitment you've turned back on, Jesus comes and signals a dawn of hope to you. And then he comes to them and he stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Have you caught anything to eat? They answer him, no. It's very fascinating. He calls them children. He doesn't call them friends. He doesn't call them brothers. doesn't call them servants. He's taking right back to the beginning again. Now, when Jesus asks a question, remember, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a question, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of those he's asking. Any fish? No. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Remember at the beginning of the gospel, he called them, and he calls out and he says, have you caught anything? And what did they say? Nothing. Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. And they caught this massive thing. So he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you're going to find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. John's the first one to clue in here. And what does he say? The disciple whom Jesus loved, i.e. John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter heard that. It was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he had stripped for work. That is, he was basically in a pair of shorts or a loincloth because they were out working all night. And so he puts on his outer thing and then he throws himself into the sea. I was thinking about this. I was reading an old Bible I had and I wrote this in the margin. Did he think he could walk on water again? <laughs> Whoa, <poof. laughs> He threw himself into the sea. He's about 100 yards out and he swims. He spontaneously reacts. There's something in Peter's heart, while ashamed, while withdrawn, that still drew him to Jesus. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about 100 yards off. And when they got out of the boat, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you've just caught. And here's just some fascinating things in here. I've read that of all of the senses, smell is the most powerful with memory. And it says when they got on land, there was a charcoal fire. Where was the last time a charcoal fire appears in this gospel? In John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested. He's at the father-in-law's house of the high priest. John talks about people, goes in, and he arranges to let Peter inside the gate. So he's in there, huddled around a fire, warming himself with soldiers and servants. And it's very specific, he says, and it was there, they were around a charcoal fire. Now think of this. Here he is. He's warming himself, and that smell, you can't tell me, it didn't take him right back to when he just denied Jesus three times around that fire. Let me ask you, certain smells, you, immediately you're transported in your memory. 
When I smell smell diesel fuel in a humid, hot place, immediately I'm in the back of a truck in the island of Guadalupe with my friend Doug driving to our accommodations. It just happens every time. What smell? There's a smell that, boom, you can go somewhere immediately in your memory. And the charcoal file was there, and this is where he denied him. And I I cannot help but think that this just rocked Peter. The second thing we see is that Jesus has fish cooking. But he exhorts them to bring some of their own. Doesn't that sound redundant to you? I was thinking about this, and I was reading. And uh, N.T. Wright said something fascinating. He said, Jesus doesn't need your fish. But he calls you to bring some. Because we get to participate in his work. I think that's really cool. He doesn't need what they had, but he commanded them. Jesus doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your gifts. But he includes you and calls you to bring them to the party to participate in the work of God, to work with him. What a privilege. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. So here they are around this fire, and he says, bring some fish. So it's Peter that runs. And he gets in the boat and goes to the back of it because presumably it's tied to the back out a little farther, not right on the shore. And he begins then to pull it along closer where he can get some of the fish. Now, I find this fascinating. I don't know if you who are parents, uh, you'll understand. But even if you're not, probably you when you were young did the same thing. Or sometimes you might even do that to a good friend or a spouse these days. When you do something wrong and you know it, What happens, my kids would do this, it was fascinating. They'd do something wrong, they knew they disappointed us, and they knew that we were um, aware. And suddenly they were afflicted with terminal niceness. (laughs) They suddenly were so helpful, doing things they weren't asked to do. My daughter will bring little gifts for me that she knows I love, and suddenly they're on my desk. And I can't help but wonder, you know how that happens when you feel guilty and you know something's coming, but you try to be nice, you serve, you do things. Why? Maybe to take the edge off what's coming. Maybe so hopefully we'll go, oh, wow, how nice are they, and forget about the whole thing. So here, I can't help but think, here's Peter running around. We need get some fish. He's there. He's pulling in. He's doing all the work. Why? Because he knows he's disappointed Jesus so badly. And so now he's, you know, doing everything he can. Um, I don't know if that's true. But 153 of them, true fishermen, they know exactly how many fish they have. And they were big fish, by the way. Verse 12, Jesus said, come and have breakfast None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Remember, there was some ambiguity. They knew it was Jesus, but somehow in his appearance, he was a little bit different. There was continuity from his earthly body, but yet some things were different. And I think these are going on in their minds. The disciples seemed to be reluctant to eat as well because they too had all abandoned Jesus. Remember? They all ran away, but especially Peter for his denying And so the other seemed skittish. Now, in that culture, the offer of food was not just here, have something to eat. As we're becoming a more intentionally intercultural church, there's things that we, I, are learning, am learning. 
and that is that food means more than just food. It's an extension of relationship and fellowship and friendship. And so Jesus meets these who have abandoned him, Peter who denied him, and he cooks food for them. He says, here, come and eat. What is he saying? He is extending to them fellowship. And I can imagine it was especially hard for Peter. Verse 13, Jesus came and took bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We don't know how many times exactly uh, Jesus revealed himself. Maybe a few more than this scene. Uh, one, he was telling the disciples about the kingdom of God. Another time, he's going to give them a commission to go and make disciples. Another, uh, we know that he gave the disciples instructions about waiting in Jerusalem until they're empowered from on high. We know that there's a number of times. In this occasion, there was unfinished business with those who returned to their previous occupations, especially Peter, and there's unfinished business. You see, Jesus addresses Peter's unfinished business in a way that's very consistent with who he is, what we read in chapter 1, full of grace and truth. Jesus needs to finish this unfinished business between he and Peter and between Peter and the others and between Peter within himself. So Jesus is going to do this in a creative and masterful way, full of grace, yet without avoiding the truth of people's, Peter's decisions or actions. And what we don't see here, we're going to hear later on, is that when Jesus starts talking to him, it's like they start pulling away from the crowd and go for a walk on the beach, the two of them. But just, it's just happening just as the others are leaving. So this whole scene is ultimately about Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, very fascinating. He does not call him Peter. He uses the name before Jesus called him. Interesting. Another clue that, G- that Peter actually went back to his old life. So Jesus meets him there using that old name, not Peter the Rock. He calls him Simon, son of John. Don't you love Jesus? He goes where you fail. He goes back. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, commentators have decimated small forests about what he means by these. And basically, it boils down to this. As Jesus is walking away with him, he says, do you love me more than these? And he could be pointing to the boat, the nets, and the fish. Do you love me more than this, your old life? Do you love me more than the success you've had this morning with all these fish? Do you love me more than that? Or he could be pointing to all the other disciples there. Do you love me more than these guys, your friends? Some commentators say, do you love me more than these guys love me? Maybe it's all three. I, I, this is really, really important. And I want to pause and say this. There is no 
record in the scripture till this point that Peter has repented. There's not a verse. Even though Jesus appeared in the room, Peter was in the room, and they were glad to see him, he never says anything, never asks for forgiveness, never repents. So there is unfinished business here with Peter. And uh, so it's like Peter's under this cloud of uncertainty and guilt. There's also uncertainty in the other disciples because, you know, you were our leader and you denied him. Who's going to lead us going forward? And Jesus intends to clean the air, clear the air, make things right, and reset the course for Peter. And so he says it. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep or shepherd my sheep. It's the second time. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's grieved now. He's saddened. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, and in the Greek, you is is emphatic. You know. You, the one who knows the hearts of all men, you know my heart. I failed you miserably, but you know. I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three questions. Three answers. Three calls. Very significant in light of Peter's three denials, don't you think? Jesus deals with us as individuals and he knew I need to get to the heart of Peter and I'm going to do it in a real way that's going to bring him to a place of ultimate repentance and reaffirming his love for me. And this whole scene is to show Peter as restored and recommissioned. Leon Morris, a commentator, said, whatever had been the mistake of the past, Jesus was now restoring Peter to a place of relationship and trust. So in a creative and impactful way, he leads Peter into a change of heart and mind and direction. The one who just a few weeks earlier lied, denied Jesus that he even knew him three times. And now was not only being released of his guilt and shame, but being reinstated to serve Christ, commissioned by Jesus to shepherd and teach his followers. N.T. Wright says this, if you're going to do a single solitary thing as a follower of Jesus, this is what it's built on. Somewhere, deep down inside, there is a love for Jesus. And though goodness knows you've let him down enough times, he wants to find that love 
to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past, and give you new work to do with him. This is a story of grace and truth of Jesus on display as he's restoring and reinstating and recommissioning this believing disciple. Masterfully, knowing it's going to touch his heart, Jesus does so by asking three questions, inviting three affirmations of love and calling him three times back into service, the lying denier who just three or four weeks earlier denied Christ. is restored and commissioned to serve as the shepherd of God's people. And if Jesus can do this with one who failed so miserably, he can do so with you and with me. Let the ruins come to life in the beauty of his name. Rising up from the ashes forever he reigns. Isn't that good news? Friends, I don't care what you've done, where you've been, what you've said. I know deep down in your heart, if you were a follower of Jesus, there's a love down there for him somewhere. And Jesus wants to Uncover that, fan that into flame, let you surface it and express it. He wants to heal the hurts and the habits, the lies you've believed as a result of those failures. And he wants to fan that into flame and help you come to a place where you not only just love him back, but you actually get to be used by him. So long as there's Christ is on the throne, and before he returns, there is hope for you and for me. And that's great news. That's the gospel. Now he continues on with Peter. Verse 18, truly, truly. Remember when he says it twice, what is he doing? He's saying, take note of this. It's like neon lights. Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. That phrase, stretch out your hands, was code in the early church for crucifixion. Jesus now gives a prophetic word to the one he just restored and he's calling him to come and serve him, but it is going to come at great, great cost. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying that, he said, follow me. Regardless of what the cost is, Peter, you follow me. That was the first words he said to Peter way back on the shore, you know, way early on. Follow me. And here he's saying it again. Follow me. Even if it comes to your death, you follow me. And God will be glorified. 
And Peter turns and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So this is why we know they went on to walk at some point. Then John leaves the others and he comes and he's following. Now he's following. And so after Jesus says this to him, he must hear something. And he turns and he sees John following them. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? What's going to happen to John? As if to say, will he be killed by crucifixion like me? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It doesn't matter what's going to happen to John, Peter. If I want him to be alive, it doesn't concern you. It's none of your business. You follow me. I have a plan for you. I've reinstated you. I have great things for you to do. Yes, it's going to end in your death, but you follow me and you be faithful. You be faithful in your journey. Now, I just want to end with a couple of things that we see in this story. You guys okay out there? It's a rich story. And you don't know how many pages I cut out. I had to. It's just so rich. One of the greatest chapters in all of the scripture. But in Jesus' restoring of Peter, we see three qualifications that are implicit in Jesus' words that if you and I are going to be used by him, they have a message for you and for me. So these apply, they apply to our lives. So these qualifications, you know, for us to be used by God. And here's the first one. We've got to have a, a supremacy of love for Jesus. Love for Jesus. Absolutely essential. It's fascinating that Jesus, in his first words, when he takes Peter alone, doesn't chastise him, doesn't try to, you know, threat, what he says, he says, do you love me? Why? Because core to following Jesus and being used by Jesus is love for Jesus. It's the ultimate motivation that's going to keep us faithful. You think a half a world away? A ring on my finger? Or some duty to stay faithful to Leah? Is going to keep me? Or keep her? I love her. How much more with Jesus? It's love for Jesus. And some of you wonder why you can't stay faithful because maybe you haven't cultivated love for Jesus. You just think it's all about doing or checking off certain things you need to know, answer the right question to get into heaven when you die. This is about a relationship with God, with Jesus himself, and it's a love relationship. So if you want to be used by God in your sphere, One qualification is a supremacy of love. Jesus said, do you love me more than these? Your love for Jesus must trump every other love. Love for stuff, love for money, love for success, love for friends. I'm going to say this, and you've heard me say this many times, love for spouse. Leah's number one love is not to me. It should never be. It should be to Jesus. 
And by doing so, it's going to help her love me. So if you want to be used by Jesus, and I know everyone in this room has failed. I love what, what uh, N.T. Wright said, you know, you know, the Lord knows how many times we've failed. And love for Jesus. Second thing, a sense of calling. A sense of calling. If you want to be used by God, you have to have a sense of calling. You need to understand that every single believer is called by God. Sometimes, and it's our fault often in the history of the church, we talk about it as though only pastors or missionaries are called by God. But that's not true. Every single believer is called called to serve God, called to witness for Christ, called to make disciples, called to, you know, seek the kingdom and bring the kingdom, called to care for the lives of others, called to help the poor, called to, you know, all kinds of things. We, there's a calling on our life. And that's going to keep you faithful to Jesus in, minute, in serving him. Wherever he has you planted. Some of you called to the marketplace. Some of you called to, you know, education. Some of you called to the medical field. That's your calling. God has called you there. And he's planted you there to be used by him. To bring influence and hope and help and love. and Righteousness. If it wasn't for a sense of call. Oh man, people said, how, could, how do you stay there through all those years of, you know, grinding it out like that? It's because of a calling. And every one of you are called. Some of you are, you're called to make disciples cleverly disguised as a salesperson. Cleverly disguised as a high school teacher, cleverly disguised as a healthcare worker. The sense of calling. Lastly, life of obedience. Jesus leads, we follow. He is most important, not us. His purposes trump our comfort and convenience. Following Jesus is a life of obedience that may and probably will lead us into pain and persecution. And I'm saying this, I read an article this week that um, the top five idols in the church culture of North America, you know what the number one one was? Comfort and convenience. The call of Christ goes directly against that. He says, Peter, you are going to go places that you don't want to go. And Christ has called every one of us, and it's going to take us to think places we don't want to go, to do things we don't want to do, to hear things we don't want to hear, to be called things we don't want to be called, to be excluded when we want to be included. The call of Christ. In this world, you have trouble. Everyone who follows Christ will be persecuted. These are promises in the Bible. We should make a book. Least love promises in the scripture. Another two temptations we face when following Jesus when it becomes painful or hard. We're tempted towards pity. Why me? Why me? 
And we ask it over and over. I've been there. You know how many times I asked God why when our first daughter died? You know how many times I asked? You know how many times I've asked God why? Why we can't get access when all my friends are building church buildings all around us? I know that. I know that. We contend the temptation is towards pity. Why me? Here's the other temptation towards comparison. What about him? What about him? And Jesus says, if I want him to stay, what is that to you? I was in Chicago and uh, uh, Rick Warren's wife Kay was speaking and she talked about this very passage and she taught us what is called the witty principle, W-I-T-T-Y, witty. If I want Peter to remain, what is that to you? Witty. Why did their kid live and mine die? What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me in that pain. Why are their churches getting built in art? You follow me. Why are their kids doing so good? And my, you follow me. Why can't we have you follow me? Why is there a business booming and mine's getting flushed? You follow me. The tendency to compare. Friends, God wants to use you. I don't care where you've been. We've got to recalibrate our love for Jesus, dust it off, fan it into flame, and let that love surface again and express it to him. Heal whatever hurts and hang-ups that are there that are just clouding you and keeping you back from being served. And re-grab onto your calling again. And then live a life of obedience regardless of the journey of others, you be faithful to the one he calls you to. Amen? Let's call it a day. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. Oh, Jesus, we know the pull of our culture towards comfort, convenience, towards you know, just not standing out. We just, we just don't want to ruffle any feathers. We just want to blend in. We don't like the discomfort. And Lord, it's just easy to hide in the shadows. But I thank you that you went to the shadows in failure and despair. And you bring the dawn of new hope. I pray for people in this room. There are some in this room who have failed you. They've neglected you. They've held you at arm's length for a long, long time. And you have made them for a purpose. And I pray, God in heaven, that you would grant them grace and you would just bring them to a place of loving you again. 
heal the hurts of the past. And may they see their calling. Would you speak to them and lead them into it once again? Reinstate them. Bring life to the ruins, the neglected places in our hearts so that we together would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray.